Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. I'm going to break all the rules today. Uh, this is a, 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 a genre-defying uh, show. Usually in these shows, uh, I ask my guest at the end of the show what they're reading, what they're watching, what they're listening to during the pandemic. But my guest today is perhaps the leading uh, genre-defying writer and thinker in the English language, uh, Jeff Dyer. And so I thought we would begin at the end with Jeff and talk about what he's reading, watching, and listening to during the pandemic. Uh, Jeff, where have you been spending the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andrew. Well, I mean, uh, geographically, I spent uh, the bulk of it uh, hunkered down in Los Angeles. And then about uh, two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I came to uh, to London, where um, we, we typically spend uh, a, a part of the summer each year, um, rather pointlessly in a way. I mean, and usually we come here because I love Wimbledon so much. Um, but what that means is that I really like watching Wimbledon on British TV rather than on American TV. But we came a bit earlier uh, this year. Um, and, you know, uh, our lives in uh, L.A. and uh, London are pretty much the same, really, although we're allowed to, uh, to to go out more now, apart from going out to play tennis. We're, we're, um, we're not going out much. So this might seem like a, a sort of... A rather pathetic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, how does how does Jeff Dyer read? I imagine this is my fantasy of you, Jeff, that you have this huge library, a kind of Borgesian library, and you're surrounded by all these different books from comics to serious novels, fiction, nonfiction, English, every language in the world. And every day or perhaps every afternoon, you you turn your gaze to another kind of book is that fair how, how have you become so eclectic so genre defying well i see what's happened andrew you've actually got the wrong number uh, you, <laughs> you, you, you're on the line to roberto Calasso or george steiner those oh yes well yeah. we probably yeah exactly <laughs> so uh, no i'm uh, i mean certainly I'm, i've got a lot of books but they're all just in one language english um and yeah they're, they're very wide ranging and uh, but I think one of the it is I'm sort of glad you've asked this because um, the the pandemic for me personally it's it's done something which was uh, sort of in progress anyway and it's this I mean for many years I was really excited to be um, you know reading books that hadn't been published yet I was always reading things in in proof. Um, or I'd read books just after they were published and I'd be reviewing them. So I was really right there at the at the coalface and the cutting edge of, of what was happening in publishing. And I was really spent a lot of 
time doing that. And it was part of my, you know, I was really, really happy to do it. And then gradually, I mean, I spent uh, more time, um, you know, reading, reading older stuff. And it seems to me that typically, I mean, so much of the force of publishing is, of course, uh, geared up to making you read uh, the, the next big thing. And although I can't remember the statistics, I'm aware that, you know, the whatever, a very high percentage of uh, the, uh, the sort of, uh, of a book's active life takes place in about the first eight weeks of, of it being published, after which it slips into some sort of some kind of permanent vegetative. Yeah, and, and, and that's if the author's lucky. Usually it's eight minutes, I think. Uh, yeah, my books, right. Anyway, my books have been eight minutes, but maybe yeah. other people have more luck. And then, you know, two brief revivals occur after you've slipped into that sort of coma that's a precursor to total oblivion. There's the paperback. And then there's the thing which is traditionally regarded as a bad thing. But actually, I think it's it's not always, you know, you get remaindered. And I was always struck when I came to America before I lived there, by the way, that the remainder scene was so thriving that it seemed to me a good policy might be to first of all publish a book as a remainder, and then if it did really <laughs> well at sort of three ninety nine, to then publish it as a full price hardback. So, and you know, I'm I was I'm conscious that it really it's a way this thing which is viewed as a bad thing since every book ends up getting remaindered either because it's a total flop or because it's been such a mega success the market is completely saturated it's actually a good way of bringing your your books to the attention of a wide readership anyway so i mean that the, the, there was that going on but um yeah gradually in recent years that sort of the the stranglehold of of, of the new has been loosened and it seems to me that the pandemic has really uh, intensified that now that there's not the ability to go into a shop and see that actually it's the latest things that are being really pushed forward. That sort of coincided with my tendency to go back to older things and to, to re-read re things. So, I mean, just in the last uh, 10 days or so, I've reread uh, Lord of the Flies by William Golding, which in you know, in England, it suffered a bit from being this kind of archetypal O-level book that you read at 16. Uh, it's really great. And then I also reread Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, who I'd, I'd never liked for uh, for reasons of uh, chippiness, really, that distinct English quality. Brideshead Revisited is really great, it turns out. Um, not so, you know, there's some breaking news. And then just uh, just today, I'm finishing reading uh, My Antonia by rereading My Antonia by Willa Cather, which is really great. So um, yeah, uh, I'm very very pleased to be freed of the uh, of the um, liberated from that urge to read the the just published. Are you? A, 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 I mean, again, this is a bit of a leading question, but are you a, a, a utilitarian reader? I mean, given your eclecticism, given the fact that you're you're always doing unexpected things in your work and, and, and finding unexpected references. Whenever you're reading, whether it's it's Brideshead or, or, or anything else, are you looking for references for future work or are you just doing it for fun? Uh, both, really. You know, it's uh, the uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the work it, it is fun and in the fun is work. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, I'm always I'm in the case of something like um, 
bride said i wasn't reading it with any sort of ulterior motive but uh you know it feeds into the sort of on on ongoing thing thing of uh, of one's work but uh yeah it's sort of yeah it, it's it's always surprising when you're um engaged in something how what you're reading can so often almost magically acquire a relevance which it might not appear to have so i'm I'm very. I've always been quite happy to be at the mercy of uh, what I read. But in terms of the kind of utilitarian quality, I mean, if you know, when I was writing that history of photography, you know, I forced myself to read some really quite boring biographies of Stieglitz and whatever, and I could force myself to plow through them just to extract the facts that I wanted, and I can do that. Uh, but I mean. You know, it's really it's pretty grim there, and that does and that does feel just like work. And I'm trying to read books like that to get the information in the most efficient and least time-consuming way possible. But it's not it's not ideal. Jeff, you're a very again. You don't need me to tell you this. You're a very visual writer. Uh, you you mentioned your your wonderful book on photography. You've written some remarkable books about movies your 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 last book uh broadsword calling danny boy is this uh, incredibly creative take on where eagles dare many many of our listeners will be familiar with zona which has done more for andre tarkovsky than i think anything else uh you also write wonderfully about music uh, are you puritanical in the way in which you divide your day into reading and listening and watching or is it all part of the same game yeah not puritanical although i mean you know i i spend a lot of the day um not reading uh because i feel that during the day the mornings especially should be sent spent writing and that really does however however you spin it that always feels like work uh whereas reading feels like relaxing and i guess then I mean, uh, after reading, what's even more sort of relax? You know, it feels even less like work is uh, is watching films or or listening to uh, or listening to music. Um, so, and then you know, in the words of that Michael Hoffman poem, and then you know, eventually the day goes down in a blaze of television. Um, so yeah, there's that kind of hierarchy of of effort. But then you know, listening to music is something that uh, you know. I mean, listening to I don't know, late Beethoven or something. Of course, listening to that fully is something that uh, is that's a really uh, strenuous and intellectually satisfying way of, of of spending your time. It really requires one one's full attention. And I should say also that you're flattering me to say that uh, I, I write well about music. I mean, I, I have done, if that's not sounding sort of boast, but. Uh, like boasting I mean, I did in that jazz book but beautiful but um you know music I find pretty nearly impossible to 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 write about now why do you write well so creatively do you think about films then because that's also really hard to do and you you've you've mastered that one yeah no that's actually pretty easy to do I I, I think well easy for you I don't know about for anyone else I, you know I think probably uh if you did some sort of survey, I mean, music's always been difficult to write about because, you know, it's this thing that it's, you know, okay, if you if you have command of the technical language of music, you can talk about B major and 
D minor or whatever it is. But still, the to to properly engage with music, you've got to be able to to sort of play it, and uh, you know, and, and you you can discuss music within the language of music. It's sort of easier with uh, with film because you can just say what you're you're watching, and in fact, in a way. I think those two books about film that you mention, uh, Zona and Broadsword Danny Boy, I mean, they could be read as statement, prolonged statements of infirmity that, uh, okay, I can't think up my own plots to write novels, but I am capable of just summarising what's happening in, in something else. And I think I like the way that, yeah, it's just a, it's almost, I would say, a form of, um, almost regard it as a form of highly creative translation i am translating what's going on into screen uh, on the screen into uh, into uh, you know my own particular language what haven't you written yet jeff oh that's easy to do you know i'm always I, a couple of years ago i can't remember when it came out exactly you know george steiner published that book my unwritten books and I think at a certain stage in any writer's life, you you contemplate the books that you, uh, you know, maybe uh, want to write. So there's all sorts of things that, uh, you know, I'm conscious of uh, not having got round to. And, you know, so there's the one that's been hanging over me for years is the, the, the book about tennis, which, uh, you know, mm. that's the one that I ended up, instead of a book about tennis, which I was contracted to write, I handed in this book about Tarkovsky, so that's mm. where, as a, as a, as a, yeah, that was a, that sort of hanging well, over. He played, Tarkovsky played at Wimbledon, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, that's right. Along with uh, Alfred Lorne Tennyson. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's that's that's one I'm very conscious of, and then there's um, there's the couple of things I'm sort of grappling with uh, at 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 the at the moment, but. Um, yeah, you know, there's a, uh, you know, got it. Would be, it would be. Uh, I'm certainly not at that um, stage of thinking. Oh yeah, you know, it's all. I've I've done it all, and I can feel quite contented now. No, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I feel quite a, a considerable sense of discontent uh, still with, with with what I've done. Fortunately, how about a book about Wimbledon? In a, in a in a kind of cultural sense, I oh, remember going yeah. to Wimbledon. Uh, I used to. Uh, we we're about the same age. We grew. We both grew up in London. I remember Wimbledon really sort of defining my summers, queuing overnight, watching McEnroe have meltdowns. It, it really defines your childhood. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't write a, a book about Wimbledon, but I mean, Wimbledon is, uh, along with Notting Hill Carnival, one of the two greatest things about England. I think it's so fantastic um and yeah i mean i've actually been to wimbledon quite a few times now i mean a few years ago with my sort of deep cynicism i arranged to to write about uh, uh, wimbledon for the new york times magazine purely i have to say so i could get tickets i mean people talk about trump and uh, you know the challenges facing journalism but actually the the real challenge facing journalists is how to get press tickets for for Wimbledon. It's it's incredibly it's incredibly difficult. And how would you explain to someone who's really bored by tennis why it's such an interesting sport? Oh my God! You see, there you are trying to get me back into that difficult world of um, of, <laughs> of, of the book that I failed to write. 
I mean, I don't know, but it's, um, I mean, what I, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, here's, I could say this about, about playing it really, that um, um, uh, during the, I mean, I ended up wanting to watch, although I didn't watch much of it, uh, the chess championship last year or whenever it was with Magnus, whatever his name is. and the Carlson, other- yeah. Yeah, and the reason I got into that is because I'd been re-watching the Australian Open final when Roger beat Rafa, and as well as being great tennis, I was really, really struck by the, you know, because the coverage now is so great, the close-ups of them and the concentration on their face. And I realised that although I really don't like concentrating in most ways, I really like watching people concentrate. Anyway, it turns out that it's not great to watch people concentrating on um uh, on chess if you don't understand chess but although i don't like concentrating on things like uh chess or something like that or crosswords i really do love the concentration involved in playing sport and um i i i enjoy that so much uh and i can i love feeling that my brain is operating in in that way and uh um, you know, when you're when you're at Wimbledon, you can. Uh, I mean, that's one of many, many, many aspects of it that uh, obviously you you get completely, uh, completely immersed in. But you know, Wimbledon is. I mean, what one of the things I I hadn't realised until you go there. It, I mean, I love going to festivals, all kinds of festivals, and you know, Wimbledon is a a, a fantastic festival. It's a tennis-themed festival in the same way that Crufts is a, a dog-themed festival. But it's got all of the, the things that we associate with a festival. And as you'll all be, for anyone who's been to a, a festival will f- be familiar with this, that although everybody thinks they want to be at the main stage seeing Beyonce or whatever it is, you know, uh, and they want to be on centre court seeing, uh, you know, Rafa, you know, the thing is about festivals, something amazing can happen on one of the smallest stages, I on court court fourteen or something at Wimbledon, great matches can break out anywhere. And Wimbledon is, of course, at least considered from the outside to be the the, the quintessentially English event. I'm always curious and perhaps a little bit confused about you because, on the one hand, talking to you and reading your stuff, sometimes it seems quintessentially English, and yet you're so un-English in your eclecticism. Okay, you may not be. George Steiner or Umberto Eco or one of these other continental types. But you definitely are, as as your website suggests, genre-defying. Do you think of yourself as an English writer? I know that's a bit of a stupid question. Uh, Yeah. uh, So at the most basic level, for example, if if the books come out in uh, the American edition first, you know, I always make sure that when they're copy edited, they're they're done with English punctuation because the two are, you know, the English punctuation is different to American punctuation, and when it's repunctuated into American, it never it never seems like me. So the the most literal answer, the nuts and bolts answer to your question is, uh, yeah, very much a, an English writer. Yeah, but, but you're avoiding my question, Jeff. There, you know, oh, I mean, it's got nothing to do with punctuation. Um, I mean, do, do you fit yourself into some sort of English tradition of writing? I mean, well, is there somebody uh, who you you would be honoured to be included in, in that tradition? 
yeah, lots of people really, you know, uh, John Berger, um, right. and crucially Lawrence really. And I think actually it's, it's one of the things that you could draw up a quite a pretty quintessential English tradition of writers who took great pride in the fact that they were, um, you know, not typical English writers. And it's in the same way, I'm always conscious of this uh, way that people can, you know, make this claim for themselves being an outsider. And you realise, oh, yeah, that's a nice, that's a really nice, cosy tradition to be part of, the outsider. Um, and, you know, I'm really conscious that Lawrence is such a key figure for, for me. And of course, Lawrence incarnates this thing of the of the English writer whose work is in some ways defined and animated by his passionate hatred of England. Uh, and, you know, there's that great line of Lawrence's, which I keep coming back to when he says, yeah, English in the teeth of all the world, even in the teeth of England. And it seems to me it's, uh, uh, encapsulating a, a sort of a feeling about uh, about England, which is pretty contrary to uh, an, an American version of uh, 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 of what it is to be American. At some level, there is this thing in America where you're always appealing to what America should be. And in many, many instances, God, we're seeing it now, there's this thing that it's, uh, America has fallen short of its own claims to, uh, to, to greatness. I definitely get the Berger, and and I would have brought. I'm sure people, lots of people, always compare you to Chatwin for his his ability to write different oh, kinds of books. Fair, uh, but but the Lawrence one's interesting because I always think of Lawrence as a as an aggressively political writer, and I don't see much politics in your work. How, how would you respond to that? Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, and Lawrence was uh, the thing about Lawrence, though. You could precede his name with any kind of adjective, and it would fit aggressively political is right but you could also have said in many ways stupidly political given that uh, you know mm. at one point he says you know he believes what is it in the divine right of kings and he says uh, he says about the people of cornwall that uh, they should just be kept kept and used as servants so uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, political opinion few writers have had more stupid political opinions than Lawrence, but to his great credit, eventually he came round to a to a belief in some sort of uh, you know so, so, social uh, social democracy, and um, yeah, you know it's something that I'm. It's one of the interesting things about the the writing life in that so many of the writers that I've loved, you know, Berger, Orwell. Um, mm. Although, you know, I know he's not, I'm not going to get caught up doing this. I know he's not English, but, uh, you know, Raymond Williams, who's uh, Welsh, mm. uh, is such a hugely important figure for me. So these are all very political writers. And, you know, maybe at the outset, at an early stage, I assumed that, yeah, I would be, um, you know, I'd be uh, sort of aligning myself with them. And then it just didn't work out that way. It turned out, that uh, that isn't that's one that it's just that wasn't the kind of writer I was going to be. There was a phase early on when I was um, uh, sort of so enthralled to Berger that I ended up writing a few Berger-like things. But I really that wasn't that wasn't my thing really. And it's one of the interesting things about the writing life, the aspects of it over which you uh, you have no power or control at all. So yeah, I I assumed I'd have assumed I would have turned out to be a a much uh, a much more political writer uh, th than I am. Do you think that the world of 
June 2020, a world of the pandemic, of race riots, of everything now being brought into question, is increasingly coming to kind of resemble a, a Jeff Dyer book, uh-huh. a, a genre-defining narrative. Do you see this coming together of, 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 of your style, your narratives, and the world itself? Oh, no. uh, nice attempt to get me to trap me into some, some sort of Nietzschean-like expression of rampant megalomania. You know, no, I, I really, really don't. What a, what a, what a, what an ineffective, ineffective low blow that was, Andrew. Well, no, yeah, that, that, that. No, what, what would the equivalent be in tennis of that? A failed lob. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, I managed to chase that. No, I don't. I don't see that going. I mean, the only. I mean, let's let's restrict the kind of context a bit. I mean, a few when I was started doing these kind of neither one thing nor the other type books. Yeah, there weren't many people doing them, and it was, uh, you know, it was a a singularly unsuccessful part of the uh, the books of the book market. But um, now there is quite a lot of this kind of stuff going on. And in fact, now there is a kind of tacit section of a bookstore um, devoted to uh, uncategorizable books. So uh, to that extent, I think, uh, you know, I, uh, the, I mean. But do, that, do you think your books help people understand the world or are you really are you really focused on confusing them even more? Oh, I think they. Uh, I, I uh, yeah, I would hope they. I, I mean, it's always it's that. If I mean, I think people. It the books help people some sort of understanding of themselves, and through that arrives a, 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 a you know a, 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 some sort of understanding of the world could take place. But but again, it's I'd be I'd be reluctant to uh, to sign up to any grand claim like that. Okay, well, I'm going to end at the beginning with a traditional ending because your books also have kind of traditional endings. Uh, uh, One book, uh, Jeff, that people should be reading during the pandemic, one movie and one piece of music. Oh, okay. So uh, the one uh, piece, the piece of music, well, I mean, one person, anything by Fred Eaglesmith, um, the Canadian kind of country singer. I've been listening to him more obsessively, I think, than almost anyone since Bob Dylan, since since Bob Dylan. He's so great. So Fred Eaglesmith, who also happened to be the the last uh, the last person I saw do a gig before uh, before the lockdown. So that that's him. Um, and uh, oh yeah, book. I think I'm going to go for. Um, I think I'd go for Len Dayton's Bomber, which I hadn't read until recently. And it's not very well written, but it's absolutely gripping. And it has this great virtue. I I think he's well known for it, Len Dayton, that his technical knowledge of the stuff that's going on in all sorts of mechanical things, aircraft and stuff. He's able to imbue imbue it with a great great narrative uh, momentum. And then films, just as the last gig I went to before the lockdown was um, Fred Eaglesmith. I think for film, I'll choose the very last film I saw before the lockdown, which was Kelly Reichardt's wonderful First Cow. And uh, saw it at a special screening at the the Aero Montana in uh, in Santa Monica. 
And it was just this wonderful occasion and it was absolutely packed and a real that real sense of people sharing it, sharing in something. And I'm very, in a way, I'm, you know, if there if I was gonna have to take a a four month hiatus from going from going to the cinema. I'm very glad that uh, I saw a film as as great as that. It's just a shame, I think, that the the film's uh, uh, the film's success uh, was heavily jeopardised by the the time at which it was released. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.